So we come to our sermon this morning, our sermon text, Acts chapter number 9. There's a sermon notes page for you, uh, if, you'd like to take, if you'd like to take notes. Uh, the, the text is printed out there for you, and there's a little uh, summary and some points for you if you'd like to uh, follow along. So Acts chapter number 9, uh, picking up where we left off a couple of Sundays ago in Acts uh, chapter 9, here the story of Saul. Uh, we've seen him before, persecuting, we'll hear of that as well. Uh, now the Lord brings him to his knees, literally, to bring him to serve him, to serve the world with the gospel. So Acts 9, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. That's about 135 miles north of Jerusalem. So that if he, so that if he found any belonging to the way, meaning those who follow Jesus, who is the way, the truth, the life, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he, Saul, said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed in and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. 
But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, meaning, remember, from chapter 6, uh, these are Jews who had uh, Greek culture. They had been dispersed throughout, the, Roman, uh, throughout the, uh, the empire of Alexander the Great and come back to the Promised Land. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And to all these words, all of God's people say, Amen. Well, everybody in America knows the hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. Everybody knows that hymn. Uh, it's, it's not just a song that's sung in church, but uh, it's played at uh, famous people's funerals. Uh, it was played at New York Stadium after 9-11. Everybody knows this hymn. It's been turned into sort of a cultural uh, prayer uh, that's used at times of great distress uh, and great uh, even national need. Because of that, sometimes we forget just how amazing it is that God looks on sinners in grace to forgive us, to bless us. And so we come here to Acts chapter number 9, and we see an example of that amazing grace of God. Here is Saul, and he is the greatest example of the amazing grace of God we have in the New Testament. He calls himself, of course, the chief of sinners. So if you don't think he's the most powerful, he's at least amongst the most powerful examples of God's amazing grace towards sinners. Paul says this, if you turn your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 1, where we can listen along. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says this about himself uh, to, to young pastor Timothy. Chapter 1, right, verse 12, he says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, me, this man that we've just read about, Saul, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. How does the verse end? Of whom I am the foremost, or I am the chief, right? I am the chief. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the chief of sinners, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 
So Paul believed himself to be an example, saved by grace and the mercy of God, as an example of how God is so patient, even with the chief of sinners, so that all would come, all would come to believe in him. And that should encourage us to know that this great God, uh, who was at work in the life and heart of Saul, Paul, uh, in the life of Timothy, in the life of the ancient Christian church that we read about here in Acts chapter 9 at Jerusalem and all throughout Galilee and, and Samaria and all throughout the ancient world, that same God is still at work. Amen? That's, that same God is still, in his grace, amazing. He still saves sinners like you and me by his mercy to be examples to all others that they might come to know Christ too. That they might see in us, they might see in us, an example of the mercy and the patience of God. Now, we think of it the other way around sometimes. We think that when, when we give our testimony, that when we share the gospel, that God is showing to our unsaved loved ones and friends, he's showing his patience to them. He's being patient with them. Because they are, you know, some of us know some very, very hardened non-Christians, or some backslidden believers, or some fallen away Christians, or, or others in between. And we think that God, and we even tell them, you know, God has been so patient towards you. You know, you sinner, right? We looked down our nose, you sinner, God's been so patient with you. See the way around, Paul says. When we tell our neighbors about Jesus, we should be the example of his patience towards me. Right? Towards me. If God can be patient with me, the chief of sinners, as the apostle says, how much more so those below. So, here, God's amazing grace to this Saul, this most unlikely recipient of grace. And I want you to see that, this amazing grace of God, here in verses 1 and 2. First of all, uh, it's demonstrated to us in Paul's pre-conversion. In his pre-conversion. Back in chapter 7, so going back to Acts, in chapter 7, uh, at verse number 58, remember that verse? Verse 58, chapter 7. Uh, then they cast him, meaning Stephen, out of the city and stoned him to death. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That was the first time we heard of him. And that was a foreshadowing, a literary foreshadowing of this man who was to come. So he was there when the crowds were stoning Stephen. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And again, chapter 8, verse 3. But Saul was ravaging. Saul was ravaging the church. Right? We see that there, ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now that, that word there, ravaging, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. Only time it's used in the New Testament, in, 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 in the original Greek. Now in the Greek old, translation of the Old Testament, that same word is used in Psalm number 80, where there's the, the psalmist is, is crying out for God. We sang this psalm last Sunday. Crying out for God to revive the nation. Because the, the nations have come into the land and they've desecrated it. And one of the examples of the illustrations of the fact that ungodly peoples had come into the holy land and desecrated it 
the illustration was given of a wild boar. And it was trampling throughout the Lord's vineyard. There, there are even shows today, and there's even a service. And uh, you can go to Texas and fly a helicopter and shoot a 50 caliber uh, or your pick of machine gun, and you can pick off wild boar because there are so many of them, right? They ravage the land. Farmers want to get rid of them. They, they're, they're an invasive species. So the Old Testament describes in Psalm 80 that the, the, the ungodly are like wild boars, and they're in this pristine vineyard of God, and they're uprooting the, uh, the, the, the vines, the roots. They're destroying the grapes. They're destroying fields. These wild boars. So that Psalm 80 connects us to here in Acts 8, where Saul is ravaging like a wild boar the vineyard of God. John Calvin said that Saul was a wild and ferocious beast before his conversion, based on that connection from the Old and New Testament. And so now we read here in chapter number 9 that he is still, notice that, that still, <coughs> still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. It wasn't enough for him that Stephen, who had preached in public and agitated the crowds, it wasn't enough that he was put to death and that, and that, uh, uh, that man of God was, was quelled. His uprising was was quenched. It wasn't enough for Saul. Still breathing threats. Still breathing murder against the disciples of the Lord. And so he goes to the high priest and he gets these letters of, 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 of authorization to travel to the synagogues throughout Damascus, 135 miles north or so, to go into every single synagogue and to root out those who followed the way. Sort of a pre-Spanish Inquisition, before the, before the Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects a Spanish Inquisition, right? No one's seen? No one's seen that skit? Nobody expects a Spanish Inquisition. Well, I guess not. Well, Saul. Saul was like a Spanish Inquisitor going to the synagogues of Damascus to root out these false members of sin, these, these, these Jews who were falsely claiming to be Jews, as they were these followers of Jesus, and they wanted to cleanse them. Men or women, notice, no mercy. No longer just Stephen as a leader or, the, or, the, or those apostles or those who might lead the crowds of the way. No, men and women, to bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so, breathing his threats and breathing his murders against these disciples, we see that this is what characterized his life. This is what animated him as a, as a young, zealous rabbi. Every time, as it were, he inhaled and exhaled, it was murderous threats towards the church. And so, as you read chapter 9, you need to read this and, as, as it were, go away from reading this story being so overwhelmed with awe at just how spiteful and angry and sinful Saul was. He was the last person on the face of planet earth that the ancient church thought would or could be saved yes 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 we know that jesus said come to me all who labor and who have laden god so loved the world we know those verses but not 
for this guy. There's no way that he would ever be saved. Notice even Ananias. This is a different Ananias than the one we read about in chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira, they're dead by now, but now there's a different Ananias. It's a popular name. Notice in verse 13, where where Jesus appears to him and says, there's going to be this man, Saul, is going to come, uh, or you've got to go find him in in this house in the street called Straight. You have to lay hands upon him uh, to, to receive his sight, baptize him, and so forth. Lord, verse 13, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. So even when a Christian sees Jesus in a vision and Jesus commands him to go, there's still that deep down fear. That's how bad Saul was. but we should also be overwhelmed with joy at just how gracious our God is. He can save the chief of sinners. Notice, he saves him in the act of being the chief of sinners. Think about somebody that you know so far from God that you and I have lost hope that they will ever come to know Christ. Maybe somebody that, maybe, maybe one of our own children. Maybe the person in our family who's closest to us. Maybe someone who grew up in church and who was baptized and who once seemingly lived a life of godliness, who once sang the same songs that you sing and prayed the same prayers that you pray, read the same words in the Bible that you read. Maybe a long, long, long time neighbor that you just care about so much. Somebody at work. Somebody at school. Think about that person. Now, now, look at Saul. Look at Saul. There's no one so far gone that, there's, that we should ever lose hope. And here's what Saul said about himself before his conversion. Before. Here's what he says. Can, can you, how would you describe your friend? As you, as you hear these words, think about your friend, your loved one, your, your own child. In Acts 2, verse 3, he speaks of the fact that he had a great zeal for Judaism and the strict training in the laws that he was taught. In chapter 26, verse 5, that he was a member of the strictest sect of Judaism. Again, in our, that verse I read from 1 Timothy chapter 1, he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. Galatians 1 verse 14 says that Paul says of himself that I had a passionate jealousy for God's law. He was always looking for infractions against God's laws. You, we've, we've probably heard about, uh, say for example, the, the regime in Iran 
that has a mor- there's a morality police that happens in many different Islamic cultures, a morality police that literally walk around streets and there are infractions against certain uh, laws, certain ways of dress and so forth. And they literally can take little, like a little stick and beat you on the spot, punish you for your infractions. Saul describes himself as passionately jealous for God's law. How dare anyone transgress it? And we know that famous passage in Philippians 3 where he lists off his credentials that he was so proud to have. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law a Pharisee, as the zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Chief of sinners. Again, he was the last person on the face of the planet that anyone expected to be converted. But can't God do the same today? Can't God do the same today? Saul, your friend, your, your loved one, your neighbor. Saul was like an unattractive piece of coal in the eyes of the church. Lord, I've heard from many about this man, all the evil that he's done. There's nothing good in this man. There's nothing that he can ever do. There's no way. Even the apostles in the earliest church did not believe it. But we might say from the one vantage point, yeah, he looked like a, just a piece of coal. From the other vantage point, of course, from God's, he, God saw in him a diamond. In fact, he made him such. And that's how we need to view our unsaved loved ones. From one vantage point, yeah, this person is, there's, there's no hope for that person. On the other hand, there's God. So we see the grace of God here, how, 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 how wicked Saul was, how bad he was. But we also see the grace of God here. It's demonstrated to us in, in the actual conversion here. And so on his way again, on his way to persecute the Lord's people, suddenly, verse, four, or verse 3 says, a light from heaven shone around him knocking him from his feet onto his knees, verse 4, blinding him, verse 8, and so forth. Now, it's interesting that this happens at the middle of the day. I'll come back to that in just a second here. So it's the middle of the day. The sun is bright at high noon, we might say. And a light from heaven blinds him. What's going on here? What's going on here? This is a way of describing what the Old Testament describes over and over and over again in terms of God and his relationship to light and brightness and brilliance and so forth, which we call a theophany, an appearance of God, an appearance of God, a light from heaven. Notice that it's not just it's not that there was this, uh, you know, a flash, a supernova happened, or there was an eclipse that he didn't have the right kind of uh, sunglasses on to look at it. No, a light from heaven. In all throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, 
we read about this kind of phenomenon where, where God, when God appears, there are things like lightning that appear, flashes of lightning. Exodus 19, I'm Mount Sinai. David describes this in, in uh, 2 Samuel 22, or Psalm 18. It's a psalm that he is recorded in two places. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, this language of God appearing, and when he appears, there's lightning or flashes of light. And we read this morning that strange story of Ezekiel where he has this vision and he sees something that is, has the appearance like a man and below his, what it looked like his waist, notice the metaphor here, the similes here, it looks like his waist, uh, fire below and above the appearance of brightness like gleaming metal. This is a theophany. This is an appearance of God. And Jesus, when he was transfigured, the Gospel of Luke says in chapter number 9 that he was transfigured in brightness and in light. And Matthew says he was engulfed in a cloud, and so were the three disciples with him. And after his resurrection, as he walks on that road to Emmaus those, uh, with those men, uh, there's also this, this, this idea that these scales fall because there's a theophany, God appears. And Jesus says that when he comes again, Luke 17, when he comes again, it will be like the lightning flashing from east to west. Again, the imagery of light, brilliance from heaven. And so Jesus appears. God appears. The Son of God appears as a light from heaven, shown around him, knocks him to his feet, knocks him to his knees, blinds him. And then notice in verse 4, he, uh, he, cried, he calls out to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And isn't it interesting in verse 5, how Saul responds? Who are you, Lord? Now, that, that word Lord can, depends on the, the context, the, the, but it, it can mean like, sir, you know, mister, you know, who are you, man? You know, that's what we, we, we might translate it in our, in our day, right? Who are you, man? It's more reverence than that, though. But you get the gist. It, it can be a person, a human being, a, a sir, a man, a mister, somebody that, you know, a boss, somebody above you. But, but it also, of course, as it's translated here correctly, Lord, Lord. Now, this is right after, again, Stephen has just borne witness. Stephen just preached. Saul was there. They threw their cloaks down at his feet. He approved the execution. He heard what Stephen said. Was he already cut to the heart? The Lord, whom he thought he was, he was jealous for, is the Lord that he's persecuted. He thought that he loved God, right? The great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the irony was that he was persecuting the Lord. And in persecuting this weird group of Christ followers, the way, Christians, he thought he was serving the Lord. But the glorified Lord says, no, you're actually persecuting me. Because when you persecute those who are joined to me, you persecute me, right? There's the head, there's the body. We are so joined to Christ that whatever happens to us is being done to him and vice versa. And again, it's interesting that twice we're told that he was blinded. Verse 8, verse 9. 
Usually the Bible reiterates things like that for effects. Why? Notice, uh, or later on we'll read uh, in Acts 22 at verse 6, when, when, when Paul recounts what's happening to him right now, he says that it happened, uh, or maybe I'll ask you, do you know what time of day he said that this happened? In Acts 22, he's describing his conversion, this, this, this experience on the road. What time of day did this happen? He said it happened at noon. Midday, right? Noon. Why is that so important? So again, verse 8 and 9 tells us twice that he was blind. And then later on he says that this blindness happened at noon, the middle of the day. So, there's something going on here. Not only is there this theophany where God himself is appearing, Jesus is appearing as he appeared in the Old Testament as God, the Lord, and then you have Saul now being blinded, we're told that twice, and it happens in the middle of the day, right? The middle of the day. It just so happens that in the Old Testament, there is a list of curses for disobedience. We read about some of those this morning in our, in our liturgy. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, there's a list, in one chapter, a list of blessings. If you obey God, here's the blessings. If you disobey him, here are the curses. And it just so happens that in Deuteronomy 28, verses 28 and 29, the Lord spoke of one curse was that if you disobey the covenant that I've made with you, you violate the terms, you sin, I, the Lord, am going to blind you at midday. In other words, here in Saul, we have an example of one who personally was now experiencing the curse of the covenant. He thought he was being obedient to the law. Serving the one true God. But in reality, he's being disobedient to the one true God. He thought he was loving his neighbor as himself, but of course, in fact, he approves of murder. Thou shalt not murder. Saul thought he was enlightened spiritually, but in reality, he was spiritually blind. And so it took Jesus to actually blind him physically to bring him to the light, to bring him to understanding. How was God's grace working in this story in his conversion? I want to suggest something to you that uh, will lead us to an application. So we read Acts 9, and, and, and you can be honest. You can be honest about this. When you read Acts 9, maybe you've not read it yet. We just read the, you read it for the first time ever in your entire life. But for some of us, we probably read it many times. So I'm talking to those of you who read, who've read it many times, and probably we have an assumption about the story here. <clears throat> we typically read, or we, we think about Saul's conversion here, don't we? that he was suddenly you know, knocked off of his feet 
And this is a great example of the irresistibility of divine grace that God converts people like, you know, cold turkey, right, out of the blue. And Saul's an example of that. That's probably how we read the story. And we have a lot of assumptions about that. And we come to it probably with that sort of a baggage. But I'm going to say something like this. Consider this. A little bit different than that. Yes, he's, he's literally knocked to his feet. But it's not that he knew nothing about Jesus. He was an utter pagan. And he's just knocked to his feet. He's converted. I want to say that there's something different going on than that. Even before this dramatic experience here, Jesus was working in Saul's life. How do I know that? Because when Paul recounts his experience of what's going on here on this Damascus road in Acts 9, later on in Acts 26, Jesus, when he recounts this story, he he says, this is what Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But then there's this. So if you have your Bible open, just to show you that I'm not making this up. When Jesus says here in, in, in our chapter, verse nine, chapter, chapter 9, verse 4, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? That's what we just read. But when, you, when he recounts it later... In Acts 26, he gives us a little more information. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is Acts 26, verse 14. Jesus also, according to Saul, said this. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Johnny Cash, in one of his songs, uh, uh, one of his old songs, uh, When the Man Comes Around, he, he uses that verse, but from the old King James, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. No Johnny Cash fans today? Come on. It's, like, it's the refrain. This is like the, the refrain of the great song, but whatever. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Whatever. It, it, whatever translation, it sounds strange, right? What does it mean? Well, ancient farmers would, uh, would, would use a sharp stick to poke an ox to move in a certain direction, to plow their field. Sometimes, the ox would kick back, right? So you're standing behind the ox, you're getting it to plow your field, and you poke it a little bit, you know, go this way, go that way, keep the line straight, and it kicks backwards. And the more it kicked, the more, you know, disobedient it was, the more recalcitrant it was, the more the farmer poked the more that sharp end would drive deeper into the ox. In other words, Paul, again, was like a wild and ferocious beast. His will was strong. But Jesus' will was stronger. When he was converted, it wasn't just out out of thin blue air. He had been kicking against Jesus for some time. Jesus had been prodding him, poking him, as it were, moving him in a direction, and he didn't want to go. We know at least in chapter 7 that he heard 
Stephen preach the bad and the good news. Mostly bad news in that chapter. He recounted the whole history of Israel's sins and their, and their disobedience to God. We know he heard that because he was right there when they were stoning him to death. And as he says to us later on in, another one, in, in one of his writings, Romans chapter 7, when he was unconverted, he thought he was spiritually alive apart from the law, meaning the actual meaning of the law. He thought he was alive because he was so zealous of the law. Really, he was zealous for the outward conformity of the law. He didn't understand the true meaning of the law. It hadn't penetrated his heart. But when that law came to him in reality and his heart was open bare to God, Romans 7 verse 9 says, sin came alive and he died. But that's how he was brought to life. The law has to put us to death before we come to life. So, he's there. He sees his light. He's blinded. He falls to his knees. He cries out, Who are you, Lord? The Lord had been moving him and prodding him. and He had been hearing the law and knowing deep down inside that the law meant more than what he was just trying to outwardly do. But he was kicking back against it. He was fighting against it. He knew. He knew. That's why he says here, so interestingly, Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Why have you been poking me for so long? Why have you been bothering me? I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to cleanse the synagogues. I'm trying to keep the land pure. Why are you poking harder and harder? So that's how Saul is being converted here. But here's the application of that. Again, it goes contrary to maybe how we think of conversion. The word, the word of God, the gospel, doesn't always bring sudden conversion like you and me want it to. We don't get to take our friends, non-Christian friends, and spiritually put them in a microwave. Two minutes... Right? Two minutes, take it out, take the little plastic thing off, stir it up a little bit, put it back in for a minute and a half. Bing! Conversion. Doesn't work that way all the time. It can. God is God. But we have to come to grips with the reality that the gospel doesn't always produce the instant results that you and I want. I grew up eating instant rice. Never eating real rice that takes time to cook, right? I'm a kid of the 80s, right? So it's all, it was all, uh, uh, well, Uncle Ben, yeah. If you like white rice, but, you know. Uh, what's the San Francisco treat? What's that one called again? rice I should know that. We still, when we still eat it at home, rice but you can cook rice, you know, the real way. The people have been cooking for thousands of years, right? It actually can be done that way. Um, the gospel doesn't always produce those quick results. We have to learn that. We have to learn that. What we need to learn is to be confident 
that God's word will accomplish everything he wants it to accomplish. When he wants to accomplish it, in whom he wants to accomplish it, to what degree, to what extent, to what level he wants to accomplish it, and how he wants to accomplish it. Our task as believers is to spread the seed, right? Is to spread the seeds. We get to water those seeds with prayers. But who gives the growth? It's God. The sad reality, as we know, the parable of the sowers is that there are four, four kinds of... The seeds are thrown out and there's four different soils, right? Only one of them has lasting growth. That's a hard pill to swallow, but it's true. C.S. Lewis described this in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. Describing God, and Daxon will like this, the great, as the great angler. The great angler, the great fisher. The great fisher. It takes time, right? It takes patience. And God is the one who's patient. God's the one who takes time. Dax and I, as we've gone out fishing, we've, we've had to learn the hard truth that sometimes you pay money to go to the county, uh, to the county uh, watering hole and you don't get a fish. You spend all that time, you, you get bait, you, you know, Daxon has all the hooks and he has all the weights and he has all the lures, right? And, you, and I'm just there, you know, dad's just hanging out. But you don't always get to catch anything. It doesn't work that way. We have to learn to be patient and trust God in his perfect time. And so, <clears throat> the grace of God is demonstrated here in Paul. Finally, and just really brief to conclude, uh, in his calling. Notice that. So before he's converted, we see his life, what it was like. In his conversion, we see the power of the gospel, the power of grace in him. But we see it maybe hopefully in a little different light today that, that God has already been working and God has been taking time with him. Didn't it just happen instantaneously? Didn't just, he didn't just hear the gospel once. And he was converted on the spot. No, it took time and it was hard. It was hard. Right? Conversion can be messy. But in seeing the magnitude of, God, of Saul's sins, <clears throat> the even greater magnitude of God's grace, we see how the grace of God works in, in a sinner's life, also in, 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 Saul, in Paul or Saul's calling. Uh, one commentator said it like this, the raging lion, the one who's been persecuting, has been changed into a bleeding sheep. Bleating sheep, not bleeding, but bleating sheep. We see that in verse 20. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the Son of God. Notice that. What, what, I mean, how amazing. Now, there's an instantaneous part of the story. He's going there to persecute those who are saying Jesus is the Son of God. And he immediately after his eyes are open and he's baptized and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he goes to the synagogues and he actually says the things that he was going to persecute people for saying. That's amazing. Again, his conversion was hard to believe. It sounded too good to be true. All who heard him were amazed. Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose? To bring them bound for the chief priests? Verse 21. 
Again, verse 26, when they come to Jerusalem, right? This is the, uh, this is the capital city, right? Of, uh, of not just of, uh, of Israel, but this is where the, the church has its birth. He attempted to join the disciples. And, or but, they were afraid of him. Why? They did not believe he was a disciple. They thought he was one of those seeds that landed on the shallow soil and it quickly sprung up. There's no way this guy's a disciple. There's no way he's a follower of Jesus. That's what a disciple is, right? A student. Follower of Jesus. There's no way. But what a God this is. What a God this is. Again, it's interesting to note the parallels between Saul, Paul, uh, and Moses. He's so zealous with the law of God. And it's interesting to, to read the, parallel, the, the parallels between Moses, as he was called by the Lord uh, in Exodus, and now Saul. First of all, when they are both called, Moses and Saul, both of their names are called out twice. And, that, and that's a common thing throughout the scriptures. When someone's called, God usually speaks twice. Samuel, Samuel, right? And Samuel wakes up. Lord, here I am. Your servant listens. Moses was called, his name was called twice, so Saul. Secondly, Moses saw a burning bush. Saul, Saul saw a light, right? It's a theophany. Third, when Moses saw that burning bush, he fell down. So does Saul. It's interesting, the story says that he, he didn't eat or drink for three days. And most commentators think that that was a conscious fasting. That as he was converted, he fasted for, so that he might pray blinded, fasting to pray blinded for three days, to devote himself to Christ. So Moses falls down to worship. Saul falls down immediately, not necessarily to worship, but we see the effects of that falling down is that he devotes himself in prayer and in fasting for three days. Finally, fourthly, God identifies himself to Moses of the burning bush as I am. And how does the Lord identify himself here to Saul? What does he say? I am Jesus. Lord, who are you? I am Jesus. And our text ends with this great little note. Verse 31. I mentioned before, Acts has these little summary verses, little summary statements all throughout to encourage us all throughout. Despite times of blessing or times of cursing, times of, uh, uh, of the church being full of joy, times of being full of persecution and sadness and harshness, all throughout Acts gives these little verses that summarize what's happening to encourage us that despite what's happening outside, God is in control. So, the church throughout all Judea, and that's the southern part, and Galilee, that's the northern part, and Samaria, that's that little borderland in between, had peace and was being built up. Those regions, as we've seen, didn't typically get along. But in the church, believers, believers from Judea, believers from Galilee, believers from Samaria, in the church, they were full of peace and edification, unlike in the world. Notice that. This is what Paul is going to later on say in Ephesians 2, that the wall of division has been broken down between Jews and Gentiles. 
there's unity and peace, and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it, the church, multiplied. And isn't that what we pray for here? That we might walk in the fear of God, be comforted by the Holy Spirit, and the Lord would multiply. How? By his amazing grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. We bless you. We praise you today for the wonderful, wonderful good news of Jesus to sinners. We see it in Saul and we see it in ourselves. And Lord, we pray that you would use us as examples of your patience and mercy uh, towards those that we love and care about who are lost. Uh, Show your amazing grace in us and through us. Uh, Embolden us, enliven us. Lord, as we heard even last Sunday, we pray that you would revive, uh, reform, restore, uh, lift up, Lord, uh, this church, not just as a whole, but also our own individual lives, that we might be used by you in the world around us to point people daily to our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask all these things. We ask all these things, Lord, in his name and all of God's people say.